0: Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. I'm your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Robert Allen Goldberg, an historian from the University of Utah and the author of seven books by my count on American history. The book we focus on today is Hooded Empire, the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado. This came out in 1981, but it has renewed relevance. For example, the neighborhood of Stapleton near, near Denver recently voted to change its name because it was named after Benjamin Staple, Stapleton, mayor of Denver and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Ari, and please call me Bob. Okay. So I see that you're from New York. How <laughs> did you make your way to the interior west? I thought I'd start with a little bit of bio and then get- How to- many days do we have for this podcast? <laughs>
1: Uh, only about an hour. Okay. Well, I was born in New York City and lived there, uh, in, this, uh, there in the environs for my first 15 years of my life, last three years in Manhattan. And uh, we had taken a, the family had taken a trip to Arizona. And we just fell in love with Arizona. And as a result of that, we moved in 1965 to uh, Scottsdale in the Phoenix area. And I went to high school and college in the Phoenix area, I went to the Arizona State University, and then off to the University of Wisconsin, Madison. So uh, after that, my first job was at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and then off to the University of Utah in 1980. Okay, so you
0: had it from your childhood. You didn't move out here after you went to college. So that's interesting. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people from the East fall in love with
1: this part of the country. I do. And, uh, you know, I have allergies. So this is a great spot for me. Uh, I love the Rocky Mountain states in terms of the weather. So lived in Arizona, lived in Colorado and now in Utah, which is in terms for me, it's a place that's my great backyard. Uh, we have national parks here. I do a lot of backpacking and hiking and uh, I have hiking trails within five minutes of my home.
0: Well, I grew up in Grand Junction area, so I went to Utah a lot. I actually lived in Utah for about a year. So yeah, Utah feels like definitely like a neighbor to me. So how did you come to research the Klan in Colorado? Was that part of your graduate studies
1: for your thesis or was that after that? It was, it was my dissertation. And uh, after you finish your preliminary examination and you're finished and you're admitted to candidacy, you're expected to pick a topic for your dissertation. And I had about six or seven possible topics that I wanted to research. I was interested in a variety of different things, from the American military in the 1870s and 1880s in the West to barrios in Phoenix and also in uh, Los Angeles. And the other issue I had was the Ku Klux Klan. And I wanted to study the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan at the time in the 1960s, early 70s, was the extremist group that people feared. Uh, And uh, it was the boogeyman, if you will, of the 60s, known for its violence and intimidation of African-Americans and also its anti-Semitism. And so I thought that'd be a great topic to study, but I wanted to study it in a place where I could find the membership lists. So the membership lists were very important to me because one of the questions about the Klan had been, who joins? And there'd always been a qualitative question which is well the best part of the community had joined the clan or the dregs of the community had joined the clan and there was always this this sentence for people who watch clan parades if you think the best people are here at the uh, clan parades in the clan look at the shoes the sheets don't cover the shoes okay now many people don't wear their best uh, sunday shoes when they're parading But that was kind of a misnomer at the time. The other was you also heard people say, well, the sheets don't cover the shoes. Look how fine the shoes are. So these are the best elements. So we hadn't had a whole lot of membership lists. We hadn't had many at all. In fact, there were just a couple. And so I wanted to find a place which was politically powerful, a Klan organization that was politically powerful, and also where I had membership lists or I could create membership lists. So that's why Colorado became my uh, focus.
0: And the Klan here was a big deal here in Colorado, Denver area. So that was a good topic of.
1: It It was probably the second most powerful uh, Klan state politically after Indiana. Elected two United States senators, the governor, the lower house of the state legislature and mayors and city councils throughout the state as well. Well, I
0: remember I've known this for some, some time now, but when I first heard this, I, I found it shocking and extremely surprising because Colorado was never known you know, for a slavery heritage or an extremely racist heritage. So it just surprised me that, this, that the Klan had taken off at all, much less gained
1: such enormous power for a, a brief time in the 20s. Well, Ari, the, point, the reason for that is that when we think of the Ku Klux Klan, we forget that there were three separate Klan movements in American history. The first Klan movement after uh, the Civil War during Reconstruction, founded in 1866 in Pulaski, Tennessee, which was a rural southern organization bent upon harassing and intimidating newly freed slaves and the northern supporters, the carpetbaggers who came south. Uh, Very violent organization. So we know that organization. We also know the one that's more contemporaneous, which is after World War II, Klan was uh, formed in, uh, reformed in the Southern states. It was, it waxed and waned with the civil rights movement. And again, a violent terrorist organization which bombed churches, um, burned schools, uh, attacked and kidnapped uh, civil rights demonstrators and activists. So we know about those clans, but the clan sandwiched in between was not a Southern organization, not a particularly terrorist or violent organization and had its largest clavons and most powerful organizations north of the Mason-Dixon line in the north and in the west so that the Klan in Maine, for example, was larger than the Klan in South Carolina. And again, Indiana was the most powerful clan politically. Ohio uh, recruited 400,000 clansmen. There were 100,000 Klansmen in California and possibly 35,000 clansmen in Colorado.
0: So here's something you write about the 20s. Alongside the flapper and the bootlegger stands the hooded figure of the Ku Klux Klansman as one of the enduring symbols of the decade. So you've talked a bit about the context. One thing that surprised me was the, today we think of the Klan, I think, as more in terms of being anti-black, as you mentioned, the other two eras. But but in the 1920s, at least in Colorado, it seemed to have two main agendas, which was to rigorously enforce prohibition laws and cut down on crime generally and a virulent anti-Catholicism. And so I guess those elements, it surprised me that those were the leading elements for that mm-hmm. era of the Klan. So can you what more can you
1: say about the historical context sure. in the uh, 20s? And, and first, understand the Klan is, I use the expression, so it has a cafeteria of appeals. The Klegals, or the organizers, were instructed by the headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, to go to a community and be incognito for a week to two weeks and find out what was bothering people. What were the concerns of the people? Talk to the ministers, talk to the police. What was going on? And then the Klan was expected to mold itself to that particular community and offer a program that fit the needs of people on the ground. In the 1920s in Colorado, there was a crime problem. And as you just alluded to, a lot of it had to do with prohibition. Uh, The 18th Amendment had just been passed and Colorado and many other states and people in these states did not feel like uh, quieting their thirst for alcohol. And so there was rampant bootlegging, rampant uh, stills, rampant problems in terms of this and the associated crime that went with that. Uh, Add to that in Denver, for example, there were also problems with prostitution. Uh, There were problems with uh, waves of burglaries and robberies. And then there were other places in Colorado where the focus was on the changes in the moral code and the moral laws. So there was a great deal of concern about uh, flaming youth, to use the expression at the time, that these were people who were going to the roadhouses or parking their cars Became one, as one uh, investigator said, the car has become a bedroom upon wheels, and so that was a concern as well. So those were factors in regard to crime, and with that was a fa- the 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 interesting thing in several towns in Colorado, that and particularly in Denver, that. The police were kind of in on the on the take. They were in on the boodle, if you will. That is that they uh, we were they uh, took bribes. They gave tip offs to bootleggers and to gamblers and to prostitution, uh, to prostitute and uh, brothel owners. And so there was this corrupt police uh, problem at the same time. The Catholic problem, which has been a problem in American history from the get-go, seemed to rear its ugly head in in Colorado for a couple of specific reasons. One is the Catholic population was increasing. There was concern the Catholics were organizing, and uh, we can go into why the Catholics were a problem. Uh, There was concern that a Catholic apostolate had been created, which was designed to help Protestants leaked to the light in terms of finding uh, truth in the Catholic religion. And then in Canyon City, Colorado, there was this concern that the uh, clan was building not simply an abbey, excuse me, the Catholics were building an abbey, but rather that this was going to be the Pope's summer residence uh, in Canyon City in Fremont County. And so this stirred all of the old anti-Catholic feelings and agitation and concerns that had existed for, again, more than a hundred years in American history. So I wanted, I was going to bring this up later, but I want to take a quick
0: diversion because another book that you wrote, which is <laughs> this one. Well, uh, Ari, right, you've done your research. <laughs> well, I just I just got this book, and I'll, I'll show the other one. So back to your Arizona ties, you also have a book about Goldwater. <laughs> and these are the two I just ordered, and so these just came in the mail for me a couple of days ago. So I've not read these books yet, but I do have them on my on my pile now. But since you have the book out on conspiracy theories, and since – anti-Catholic conspiracies were so rampant among the Klan and generally in the 20s. I thought you could comment on the nature of the conspiracy theories then and how you see that, what parallels and differences you see to the
1: conspiracy theories today. I'm thinking particularly of these QAnon conspiracies. I don't know if you've followed that at all. Sure, I, do. I do follow them very closely. I've actually been doing talks on conspiracy in the age of Trump. Uh, But uh, I guess uh, I I found the seeds for my uh, conspiracy book, actually in my research on the Colorado clan, because the, the idea of a Catholic conspiracy was rampant in Colorado, in and in the United States in the 1920s, and the idea was he regret to Catholics was this, which is it wasn't simply that Catholics were wrong about religion, that they worshiped dead saints and relics, and they wanted uh, they were focused on beads. Rather, the problem with the Catholics had to do with the Pope. The idea was all of these immigrants immigrants who were Irish and Italian and Eastern European who were Catholics didn't come to the United States willingly, but rather were ordered by the Pope to come to the United States. And they would here in order to put down their roots, become citizens, and after becoming citizens, they would vote. And they were expected to vote as a bloc for Catholic candidates. And the idea is once the Catholics were in control of Congress, in control of the presidency, i.e., 1960 and John Kennedy, because it all flares up again in 1960, they would eliminate the freedoms of speech, freedoms of press, and particularly religion, and would put chains upon the Protestant pop- population. One of the aspects of this also was the idea that the Catholics were attempting to uh, gain control of the school boards. And this was a particular issue in Colorado, that once they gained control of the school boards, they would only hire, hire Catholic teachers. And the Catholic teachers would then teach the catechism to the poor Protestant children. So this was a major concern on the part of protestants and again it doesn't exist doesn't begin in the 1920s it doesn't begin in colorado you can go back into the colonial period and see this anti-catholic anti-popish concern well that goes back you know clear to the 1500s if you want to go exactly far enough so this came this this came with the uh the ancestors who were on the mayflower they brought it with them so
0: and the what's interesting is the, the the prohibition zeal seems to tie into the anti-Catholicism and anti-immigration stance too, because a lot of the immigrants are Italians say, and of course the Catholics wanted to have their sacramental wine. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing, this is jumping ahead a bit, but just to tip, tip our hand here, the Klan governor Morley actually tried or proposed at least to get rid of or ban sacramental wine. So I just thought it was interesting how the Prohibitionist angle and the anti-Catholicism angle and the anti-immigrant angle
1: kind of coalesced into this agenda. Yeah, and, and and it's very much the case. You're right on the mark, which is the uh, the Italians were bootlegging, the Italians were making wine, and this fit into the idea that the uh, the Catholics and prohibition were united. You know, we could add the Jews to this as well, because the Jews are also uh, into uh, bootlegging and into gambling. And they were, it, the Klan argued that the Klan's, uh, the, excuse me, the Catholic conspiracy was being financed by the Jews who had the money. So they were in league with the Catholics against the Protestants. Oh, I, I didn't know about that angle. Okay. I, I use this quote in my book from uh, Gano Center, uh, who ran a, uh, a restaurant in downtown Denver who had a sign in his window that said, we serve fish every day, but Friday. But what he said was the Catholics and the Jews were taking over. So we had to do something. So we went down to the Masonic lodge and organized.
0: Hmm. So here's just a side detail. So I grew up in Palisade Mm -hmm. and the area that I grew up in, we all called it Vineland. I don't know if that was official or this, that's what everybody called it, but it never occurred to me why we called it Vineland. Because when I was a kid, there were no vines there. It was all fruit trees. Of course, now it's again violent because the vines have come back. Um, but you know, I didn't realize until you know, some years ago that there were vines and then they were basically taken out during the prohibition era. And now it's gone back to, I don't know, I don't know how much is vines, but quite a bit. There's it's kind of a mix now. So it's just a little interesting historical
1: anecdote from my local experience. To go back to your uh, previous question, which also relates to the current period, you know when we talk about anti catholic uh, cons- uh conspiracies or Catholic conspiracies you 'll find many, many books on this, very lengthy books, three four hundred pages with a hundred two hundred uh, footnotes detailing the Catholic conspiracy and One of the changes between old conspiracy thinking and new conspiracy thinking is those kind of books are no longer used. Uh, the John Burt Society, when talking about the communist conspiracy, also published all of these videos and films in order to convince people. Now, conspiracy theory is uh, promulgated by a tweet. It's by a one-line statement. And there's, it's almost taken as a given that there's a conspiracy without even the need for proof. And I find that of great concern, as you might guess, especially the power of the, the internet to uh, promulgate these theories.
0: Well let me ask an, a related question. So some people make the argument that today's social media is especially harmful for spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories. But as your work makes very clear, conspiracy theories have been with us for a long time. So do you see today do you see the internet as basically a different format for spreading the same style of nonsense or is it actually a much worse environment for spreading that kind of thing because of the because the internet is so diverse and so so many independent actors can enter it.
1: You know, The I think the key factor about the internet is the speed with which conspiracy theories get disseminated. Uh, but I think what really is the issue, because I think you're absolutely right, we have had conspiracy theories throughout history, uh, way back into the European period uh, and now t- uh, today. But what happens is people go onto the internet, go onto a website, not to seek information in my mind, but to seek confirmation. And what happens is people get onto a website and they can link to other websites and other websites where you suddenly become part of a a circle, you become part of a of a uh, a sphere where you do not hear any negative information. You do not hear any information that questions your beliefs, but all you hear is information that confirms your beliefs. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in regard to the internet, your ability to get confirmation. And social scientists talk about th- the more confirmation you have, the more extreme and violent you can get in your belief in a conspiracy theory. And I think that's a concern too. Well, hopefully people can find better content such as your talks and this podcast. Um, well, you know, I have gotten uh, a variety of people who have sent me nasty, nasty notes about uh, my talks on conspiracies. And, you know, I, there are, there's a conspiracy I believe in as as a possibility, okay? I'm not saying that people who believe in conspiracies are wrong. Abraham Lincoln was killed in a conspiracy. Julius Caesar was killed in conspiracy. 9-11 was a conspiracy. So I'm not denouncing conspiracy thinking, period. But the key is, The need to absolutely educate yourself into what evidence is and what evidence is not. And people have basically decided not to read the books, not to read the the things that the books that are in libraries or the books books that come out by academics and experts, but rather to trust in these, if you will, counter counter counter-authorities who seem to be able to weave a spectacular story and a story that's absolutely entertaining and dramatic. And I have to say that's where the interest goes.
0: Well, I don't know if you noticed this little story, but on the western slope of Colorado, there was a huge political upside recently when Lauren Bobert t- uh, beat oh, yeah. the Congress per- per- congressman, Scott t- Tipton. Uh-huh. Yeah, And she's, she's not a QAnon follower, she says, but she's had some positive comments. So that's generated some local media and concern. Mm-hmm. And apparently there are some other candidates for Congress elsewhere that are pretty gung-ho about the Q conspiracy. So that's the reason that I know anything about it. Well, you
1: know, basically in this context of this, there's always been an anti-government feeling in this country. And it goes back to the, the founders. It goes back to uh, Jefferson. It goes back to Barry Goldwater. It goes back to Ronald Reagan, that you can't trust the government to do what is right, that there are these cabals within the government. And this is just another, I, 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 if you will, more fanciful one. But it fits in the line of this anti-government thinking that the there is a uh, that you give power to men and women, and those people become corrupt, and they seek more power, and they seek to forge chains upon the people, and uh, uh, it just it fits right in with basic American ideas, myths, and traditions. Well, just
0: another personal note. So I I know that I met the fellow David Nolan who helped start the uh-huh. Libertarian Party here in Colorado, and I have friends who work at the the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. So, uh-huh. and I was in the Libertarian Party for some years. I'm not Nolan. I'm a Republican now for reasons that we don't need to get into. Okay. I, I actually got into the Republican Party because I wanted to try to keep Trump out, out in the primary season, Just failed miserably, but I'm still a Republican. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with the uh, harsh criticism of government line of American thought, uh, which I think has positive outlets mm-hmm. and manifestations and definitely some negative ones
1: as your research makes clear. So going back to your- you know, My personal, my son works in the State Department. Mm-hmm. and has worked in the State Department since the Clinton period, and uh, is an honest, decent human being who seeks to do government policy depending on what the policy is, whether Republican or Democratic. And uh, he's not a part of the deep state, he's not seeking to thwart anybody's will, he just at some point just wants to know what the policy is, and that seems to be a problem with communication. You know
0: I'll share this too. So when I was this is again jumping ahead, but after when the when the Klan seized control of much of Colorado government in 1924, they were not actually very successful at implementing their agenda. And so what I was thinking when I was reading about this about these great legislators who were playing using the bureaucracy of the legislature to to clamp down on the Klan agenda. I was thinking, wow, it's a, it's a darn good thing that Colorado had a, quote, deep state back then, or the Klan would have actually had had some
1: success. Yeah. So that that's just goes yeah, along I, with what you're I doing. think the only thing that was missing in Colorado in 1924-25 were leakers uh, in regard to what was going on in the uh, in Morley's, uh, Morley's office and administration. Well, and
0: another, just to bring us up to date here, another thing with this whole pandemic that we're in right now, is that I think, it's become, I think it's going to have long-term ideological consequences because I think it's become blindingly clear to people that there's a difference between a competent government and an incompetent government. And the federal response, in my mind, has been so grotesquely incompetent <laughs> Which is why I'm still sitting in my house instead of living a normal life. So I do think that that's going to reverberate and have a lot of influence on how people think about government.
1: Well, well, Ari, you have great faith in the ability of the American people to know their history and to remember that history. I think Americans live in the present and future rather than the past. And as a historian and as an educator, I've tried desperately to press home the points that history uh, may not repeat, but it certainly echoes and i'm hoping these are echoes that will be heard for a long time.
0: well when i was in high school i wasn't really into history because i was i had i was very rationalistic i was i thought well we don't need to learn what we just need to think rationally about what how to organize society what what do these these people in the past have to teach us but so i've since been playing catch up as i realize <laughs> how important these lessons are for informing and gu- guiding our lives today as to what people did before so i appreciate you know your efforts and i appreciate you coming on Podcasting. I appreciate your optimism also <laughs> well what can you be other than optimistic I mean we have made a lot of we have made a lot of strides I mean it did another thing that struck me is and I've seen the photographs of the clan marching in streets in Denver and Grand Junction and various other cities across Colorado that was a normal thing for hundreds or thousands of clans members to walk or march around the city light big fiery crosses right. uh, have events and I thought well today you know, we, of course, we have Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets, and those, they're, that's the group that's been marching in the streets. But I think there's been some negative, some negative aspects of that on the fringe, but by and large, it's a civil rights movement. And in Colorado, we have, our legislature quickly passed a very important police reform bill um, in the aftermath of these protests. So it did strike me that there's as many problems as we still have today. There actually has been enormous moral progress in the last century. You know, I, think I, I Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, that that was it. I think I think there has been progress, and important progress. You know, I think about growing up in the fifties and sixties in New York, and uh, one of the first bit of my activism was picketing the National Guard off the armory in New York because it was segregated, uh, and that was in night in the early nineteen sixties. And so I'm amazed. I I saw the civil rights movement. I was you know involved in some of the civil rights activities in the anti-Vietnam War uh, movement, and I'm really pleased with the progress. What my concern is the amount of regression we've had in the last five or six years in terms of the uh, neo-Nazis, in terms of anti-Semitism, in terms of the ability to be as negative as you want publicly, where it seemed to have been smothered to some degree in the past. Charlottesville concerned me deeply. And I look at these protests where Americans are, if you will, armed to the teeth And I'm concerned, Uh, I've not seen in American history this kind of uproar in terms of the divisiveness since the 1850s. And that's not a prediction about a civil war, but it certainly is concerning to me that we don't seem to be looking at common issues, seeking common goals, and believing that we have a common heritage. What we seem to do is just be tearing at one another Uh, without, I don't, I'm not sure what the goal of that is. Well, my hope is that
0: what you're talking about definitely exists on, but my hope is that it's more on the fringes. And so you're getting some elements of the left and some elements of the right who are looking for a fight, who are looking to perpetuate this conflict with the other side. But I'm hoping that there is just beneath that, a much wider pool of common ground around things like, oh, yeah, hey, let's make sure everybody's treated equally under the law. Let's make sure that the government agents are not abusing people, um, harming people for no good reason. And so I guess I'm, I guess I, I don't know if I'm more hopeful than you, than you are, but I want to at least sound a more hopeful note, possibly. In, in that I think that there is quite a bit of common ground coming out of this
1: today, out of these protests. And just a just a, a brief counterpoint to that so my book on conspiracy thinking came out uh, 2001 and at that point i was warning about the the mainstreaming of american conspiracy theories and thinking and that this creates a an idea of uh, and fosters the idea of right and wrong good and bad patriot and traitor And my concern over these last 20 years since that book came out is this has intensified within the mainstream and that conspiracy thinking is part of the mainstream and it is leading to a devil angel kind of
0: division. And that is definitely concerning. And maybe at some point in the future, if you're up for it, after I read that book, we can... return to that more squarely, because it's well, definitely a, a big concern to me and really in, and interesting just as a topic of consideration. Well, I would welcome that because uh, I'm just absolutely enjoying our discussion. Um, well, speaking of, I want to get more deeply down into the book. And so one thing you say is that you actually interviewed 10, I believe, members of the clan when you were doing your research. So this was in the late, late 70s, I take it. So some of these people were still around. Okay. But you make an interesting comment that you had to use a pseudonym because when you used your, your given name, you weren't getting any responses. So I was wondering if you could tell us about how these interviews went and how they, because it must have been super weird.
1: <laughs> okay, but my naivety is what we're talking about. I was incredibly naive going to this research. So when I got to Colorado and started doing my research and compiling my names and having my lists, I just went to the phone book and started looking through the phone book for names on my list. And I would write letters to um, 20 people saying, I'm a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm working in my dissertation. I want to write a fair objective historical account of the complex Klan in Colorado. I understand that you were a member of the clan and sometimes I had their membership number. So I was able just to say, here's your membership number and Please uh, call me, here's my phone number, and let's arrange an interview. And the first 20, 30, 40 letters I sent out, not a word. I so you found a lot, though. I mean, you found dozens
0: of former Klan members that you knew how to get a hold of them. I had 17,000 names. Do you know how many of those people, like, estimate how many were still, how many were you,
1: would you have been able to contact if you tried to contact them all at that time? You know, I, I I can't give that response. I just knew that they were alive. Okay. They were in the book. So the, I sent letters out to people I found in the book and knew their who they were. Okay. Uh, so I thought, you know, wait a minute. I think I'm going about this really in a stupid way. Maybe my name is a variable here. I had shaved my beard off because I thought that would be a variable. So, uh, And this, again, is in the uh, 70s. So beards were still an issue at the time. Uh, so I thought... I'm going to change my name a bit. And so instead of being Robert Allen Goldberg, I'm going to be Allen Roberts. So I just flipped my middle and left and first name and sent out the next 15 letters and got six or seven responses. Not necessarily they would want to be interviewed, but I got responses that they were members of the clan. And so that was an eye opener. And so then I started getting of people. They wanted to talk about their experiences in the clan and, uh, I went to see these people. And so there I am, Alan Roberts, speaking to members of the Ku Klux Klan. And they're saying to th- me th- things that are anti-Catholic, anti-Black and anti-Semitic. And I'll tell you two of the things that uh, <laughs> they said to me. One guy said, you know, you can tell a Jew just by looking at him. And I said, well, how can you do that? And he said, you have Jewish friends. You know, their eyes move back and forth very quickly. Um, they they talk very fast and they try to talk you into things. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then another one said to me, you know, you can tell a Jew is in a room. And I said, well, how can you do that? And he said, well, they have, they have Jew stuff oozing out of their pores that has a particular odor. And so... Uh, those were kind of startling to me because I was raised in New York City where there wasn't much anti-Semitism that I was aware of. And so to see this absolute blunt direct anti-Semitism and then absolutely unknowing anti-Semitism because there I'm sitting in the room with apparently no Jew stuff oozing out of my pores and my eyes and my hands aren't moving too quickly for them to follow the conversation. And after the conversations were over, after the interviews were over, and I asked if I had permission to use this, and they said yes, I said, I just think you need to know that I am Jewish. And basically the response was, and I still remember this, nothing to be ashamed of, and that was... That was it. No apologies, no nothing, just simply nothing to be ashamed of. That, so that is a. Yeah, Ari, that was startling to me because here I am in Denver in the 1970s. And it to me, this is a different world than the 1920s. But there I am smack dab within it. Now, the other thing I want to note is that the Klansmen I interviewed and Klanswomen I talked to outside of Denver were much more open and fluid and less prejudiced than the ones that I talked to in Denver
0: that's also that's surprising I would have guessed it would be the reverse Um, did you talk to any person who uh, who was apologetic about being in the Klan and and espousing those beliefs or or who said that you know I didn't really hold those kinds of beliefs
1: but I would just join the Klan because my friends did or something like that I did, and that was key to my interpretation, which is what I argued is that there's a, the Klan was actually a coalition of groups that the the hood and the uh, robe hides makes it monolithic and hides the different groups within, and a lot of these people joined uh, because of the law and order issue, which had nothing to do with uh, Catholics, immigrants, or whatever. It's just they were worried about their kids. Okay, they didn't want their kids drinking, and uh, they didn't want they wanted their families safe. The Klansmen and Klanswomen I I interviewed in Canyon City, Colorado, uh, said, clear and simple, the Klan was about getting rid of the old courthouse gang. We wanted to modernize the city. These people opposed us, and that's what we were involved with. And then there were some who were just nastily anti-Catholic to this very day in the 1970s. Hmm. So
0: an early Colorado leader of the Klan was John Galen Locke you could say a few words about him and explain how he gained a fairly large following.
1: Yeah, and I first, I first want to say about John Galen Locke that John Galen Locke was a physician who had been praised for his work during the flu epidemic in 1918-1919. His wife was a Catholic, and his two secretaries were Catholics. His lawyers were Catholics and Jews. Uh, I don't think he had a prejudiced bone in his body. Uh, he was an odd fellow, uh, in the sense that he was, he was approximately, uh, five foot five, five foot six, 250 pounds. He had a goatee and a mustache. Uh, he loved the drama of weaponry. He loved the drama and the awe of having sitting on a throne. But this guy at the same time was eloquent, was uh, a good organizer, commanded fierce loyalty among his followers. Uh but not a prejudiced bone in his body. And I think what John Galen Locke was in for was in for the power. He loved the ability to affect people's lives. I have one uh, uh, interviewee who was a friend of John Galen Locke saying John Galen Locke was a physician who worked on this poor human carcass his entire life. And now he was given the opportunity to finally affect the lives of thousands of thousands of people. And he loved the power. He just loved it. And I think that was John Galen Locke. That is, yeah, it's
0: just such a strange story that somebody who's apparently not hyper-ideological would lead the organization. In my mind, it's a fairly cynical move because you're playing on people's prejudices for your mm-hmm. personal gain, or short-term, short-sighted gain anyway. And that's just, uh, I've never had, felt much sympathy for that kind of approach. Yeah, it seems very, very bad, like it's bad.
1: We want to believe that our our, our leaders care about something, believe in something, and are, are have an ideology. Okay, have a, a a constellation of beliefs rather than simply they're in this for the power. And unfortunately, I think there are too many people who are in it for the power.
0: Okay, so you you mentioned that this the Klan in the 1920s wasn't as violent as the previous Klan and the subsequent Klan. But they did, they were involved in some acts of violence. So in 1922, apparently the Klan threatened a couple of black men and actually ran one man out of town. Uh, they threatened actually the head of the Denver NAACP. Later on, apparently Locke, John Galen Locke, participated in the kidnapping of a young man, a member of the Klan, and <laughs> forced him to marry a girl he had knocked up. And, oh, those uh, were the days. <laughs> what's that? Those were the days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's other reports, so it's unclear whether certain acts of violence were tied to the Klan, such as there was actually a a bombing of a
1: Black-owned house in Denver. I don't remember the year of that. That was a little bit before. I don't think that was involved with the Klan, nor were the Klan, the mobs that met several uh, uh, Black homeowners who were moving out of the Five Points area. I don't think those were Klan either. But can I put this this issue of violence in context? So, we know the first Klan was violent, and it's estimated that a thousand people were killed by the Klan in the 1860s and 1870s. We know the third Klan was violent as well. If you look at the Klan of the 1920s, you can find areas of violence that the Klan participated in in Oklahoma, in Texas, in Louisiana, and Arkansas. And those acts of violence usually occurred before 1922. And why that's an important date is when the Klan came to a community, it went right into politics, but it couldn't go into politics in 1920 or 21 because the elections were not scheduled for that. So the Klan is engaged in a variety of its acts before it has political power. By 1922, when it gets into politics and is able to take city councils and mayor's offices all over these various states, the Klan then becomes the police force, if you will. So the police force then acts as the, the militant arm of the Klan. Now, the other piece about this is when you're joining the Klan, you basically are asked, are you native born, are you a Protestant, and do you have $10? That's a low bar to get into the Ku Klux Klan. And a lot of folks got into the Klan who, uh, for a variety of reasons. Who weren't the most savory type of folks. So there were clansmen I looked at uh, court records, and there were clansmen who committed who committed rape, child abuse, and a variety of other acts. Uh, and as also, and also there were clansmen clan, who were hotheads, clansmen who were viciously anti-Catholic, viciously anti-black, and viciously anti-Semitic. And uh, whether you see these demonstrations today in regard to Black Lives Matter, we know the vast majority of these protesters uh, have the, the American, American ideals at heart, but these kind of demonstrations also attract people who are violence prone. And I think several of these people were members of the Klan. Uh, one of the things that the Canyon uh, the City Klan did was make sure that you couldn't take your hood and robe out of the clubhouse out of the Clavern, because they wanted to avoid any extra legal type of violence. But yeah, there were some acts committed by the Klan. And I think they were more freelance than they were organizationally driven. Okay, so let's turn the first
0: major political player in Colorado associated with the Klan is Benjamin Stapleton, (laughs) who won his mayorship, I think, in 1923. He had sort of a mixed relationship with the Klan, sometimes seeking their support, sometimes lightly, lightly criticizing them. So tell us a bit more about Stapleton, especially in today's context when
1: literally right now, Stapleton community is deciding on its name change. Well, and I've actually been involved in that. And uh, I, I believe the name change has been affected. Is that correct? I think that's correct.
0: Yeah, they voted to change it. I don't, I don't think they've picked a new name yet, though. But they
1: definitely voted to, to throw out the Stapleton name. That's well, been I do have to tell you, when I first moved to Denver, which is in 1975, I was there for two years, uh, and I flew into Stapleton <laughs> International Airport, I was stunned. I thought Stapleton was not only the, a member of the Klan, but was the Klan mayor of Den, uh, Denver from 1923 to 1925. So it was rather startling to me to see. And then in the wake of all of this monument uh, removal that Stapleton's name was on a neighborhood was kind of a, uh, again, why I decided to participate in that that effort to uh, change the name. But so Ben Stapleton wants to run for mayor. Uh, ben Stapleton is a good friend of John Galen Locke. Uh, ben Stapleton is an early joiner of the Klan. I think he's member one uh, two uh, nine five or something like that. I could look that up for you another time. Uh, and the Klan is willing to engage in politics and is willing to marshal votes and willing to marshal money. So in 1923, he runs, and it, the rumor starts that he might be a member of the Klan. And Stapleton gives what was a... Uh, Uh, a standard, an uh, SRO, a a standard uh, procedure kind of uh, statement, I'm against uh, hooded tyranny, I'm against the Klan, I'm against secret government, but that's what they did all over the country. Uh, The idea was, we know you're a member of the Klan, other people might not know it, and they'll vote for you, and that's fine. So he gave that statement, and uh, he won the election in 23, and uh, immediately, he starts bringing Klansmen into his administration, uh, he brings them in as the uh, head of revenue, the head of safety, the head of parks, and on and on. And also, Klan acts in Denver are not investigated, not punished. So Klansmen are lighting crosses over, all over town. There's no investigation of the, that. A, a Jewish guy gets beaten up. A Catholic guy gets beaten up. There's no investigation of that. Uh, there are threats to bomb the Immaculate Conception Cathedral. There is no investigation of that. And so uh, the other thing is the ju- how justice was meted out by the Klan. The Klan is also in control of the courts, and uh, when they're picking uh, juries, the Klan membership lists go into the jury wheel, and so you get Klan juries uh, in Denver, 1923, 24, and 25 as well. When it became pretty clear that the Klan was administering a Klan organization uh, agenda, uh, a recall movement started. At the same time, the Klan had decided to recall uh, May Stapleton because he wasn't conducive enough to uh, Klan demands, particularly in regard to the police force. Uh, This leads to a recall election, uh, at which point in July of 1924, uh, Stapleton goes uh, up to South Table Mountain and pledges publicly that he is with the Klan and for the Klan, and if reelected, will give the Klan the kind of administration it wants. And John Galen Locke responds, you went back on us once, if you go back on us again, may God help you. And uh, Stapleton appoints uh, the Klansman as chief of police. He then clanifies the police force in Denver, and uh, Stapleton wins uh, the recall election overwhelmingly. And I use this little note in the book where the uh, bumper stickers on the cars, which read, Mm -hmm. I'll vote again for Ben, were then covered with Morley for governor, which was the election coming up. Okay, so let's move right into that, because
0: that fall, 1924, was the election of Clarence Morley as governor, who was basically Locke's stooge. Mm -hmm. So give us just a sense on the magnitude of the Klan's victories and how this impacted the, uh,
1: the governor's agenda going heading into the next year? Well, the Klan was so powerful. And first of all, remember, the Klan is a minority. So the Klan can vote its people as a block, which is very important, especially when you have three people running or more. Uh, the Klan could also... Uh, uh, what would I want to say? Forget that part. The Klan was also power enough at the same time to go not simply into the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party, depending on the county. And the Klan is able to do this. The Klan is told by John Galen Locke, we are not Republicans. We are not Democrats. We are Klansmen. And the idea was, if you didn't register to vote, and you didn't, if you didn't register, you'd be uh, expelled from the Invisible Empire. You were expected to vote for the prescribed candidates. The Klansmen knew who the candidates were because under every door on election day was distributed what was called a pink ticket. And the pink ticket by the Klan listed all the candidates running for office, and it had approved candidates with a star. And those that were uh, unapproved had next to their names uh, under Catholic influence. And so the idea was you certainly didn't want to vote for a Catholic approved or Jew was the other word that was on a uh, on the on the pink ticket. So you knew exactly who you're going to vote for. You knew where you're going to vote because you're going to be picked up to be ferried to the polls. You'd already registered to vote and you voted the Klan ticket from top to bottom. Wow. Yeah, that's that's John, amazing. John Galen t- Locke uh, set out a kind of a manual where he said, for every county will have a captain. The captain will then assign people to each of the precincts. The precincts will then be divided into neighborhoods. The neighborhoods will then be divided mm-hmm. into blocks in order to make sure that clan captains, majors, sergeants were in, 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 uh, basically had their army in line for the vote. Well, thankfully, as we alluded,
0: the Klan was not actually that successful legislatively, even though Morley did manage to put a lot of Klan members in important positions. So I we'll want to talk about the decline well, of
1: the Klan. Didn't, Sorry. He didn't, he didn't, okay, because the Klan is, is very successful in the 1924 election, in that they win the governor's seat, they win two United States Senate seats, and they basically win every single statewide office, okay? The idea that the uh, that Morley has is, what, there are a couple of laws that are introduced by Klansmen. There's a eugenics law in regard to who can marry and who cannot. There's a law in regard to sacramental wine, which you mentioned earlier. Klan also has a, uh, a law that they don't want child labor. They want women to be uh, jurors. Uh, they want a minimum wage for women. So you have some of this progressive stuff also that the Klan uh, is promulgating. What the Klan's major agenda was, and the expression was, every man under the Capitol dome, a Klansman. And the other was, put only Americans on guard. The idea was, if we can put Klansmen in office, we can have the government run by the Klan, then we don't need any laws. We know exactly what we're gonna do and how we're gonna do it, okay? So the number of laws are actually minimal. But the main goal was to make sure the government bureaucracy, if you will, the deep state of Colorado, the government bureaucracy was clarified. And that was the main direction. So one thing you
0: mentioned along those lines is that Morley was able to basically build his own prohibition enforcement force. I think think it was 200 people strong at one point who went around and tried to break up the bootleggers and the the, uh, distillers.
1: So I guess that's an example of one thing he's quote, quote, successfully did. Well, they, they were temporary, okay? Because what he, what he found with the opposition to this idea was he was going to abolish all the boards because he only could appoint a third of the boards, all these boards. So he could appoint a third, but what he was going to do is abolish all the boards from the nursing examiners to the horseshoe examiners to in every single board, and then be able to appoint Klansmen to every single board so the Klan machine, if you will, the Klan administration would continue way beyond his, his two years in office or his four years in office. What was thwarted was his effort to get rid of the boards. And so he was not able to appoint anybody with basically to honorary or temporary positions. OK, and this, is thank you, and this is thanks
0: to the bipartisan anti clan block of the legislature. Exactly. It was read, led by uh, Billy Adams, who became governor. He, Billy Adams be, was a state senator, and then he beat Morley two years later. Wow. So that's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't, didn't know much about him. So
1: Basically, the Klan could muster, and this is, the issue was the Senate because they were able to pass what they wanted in the House. But they had 15 senators, and they had 20 against them, and they could not break that hold of the 20. So, I want to stray out from
0: Denver for a bit because you talk about other towns too. And so, maybe we could focus on three because they're, they had quite different outcomes. And Colorado, Colorado Springs basically beat back the Klan and had a very active intellectual influence against them. On the other hand, Canyon City and neighborhood Fremont, neighboring Fremont, had an extremely active and extremely successful Klan. I mean, for the time it was in power. And then on the other side of the state, you had Grand Junction, where this is, and this is a strange case because this was under Walker, initially under Walker, Walker Stapleton, who ran the Sentinel, not, Daily Sentinel. I'm not, not Walker Stapleton. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Walt, Walter Walker. Sorry, yeah, I, yeah. I missed. We definitely don't want to get in a lawsuit on that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry, I, I get. Yeah, it's the it's the name carryover that gets me. Yeah, Walter Walker. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know. No that's It's just a glitch of glitch of mine um under walker in grand junction which was strange because it was more of a club and then walker was kicked out and then he was extraordinarily critical of the clan right and then as you relate the deputy sheriff i believe who was a klansman in grand junction on the street literally beat walker
1: down multiple times like beat him viciously beat him so although there's some dispute about how many times he knocked him down one one clansman said to me oh, he only shoved him once okay
0: <laughs> okay
1: well definitely assaulted the man
0: one way or the yes. other assault is the word we'll use so uh explain a bit about the different dynamics in Colorado right. Springs Canyon City Grand Junction i know that's a lot but just to give people a sense of the scope of of what what was going
1: on. So remember my my comment earlier, the the Klan basically had this plethora of programs, uh, this cafeteria of appeals. Uh, It could be law and order. It could be anti-Catholicism. It could be anti-Semitism. It could be anti-immigrant, anti-black. It could be law and order, just a variety of things. And what the Klegals were there to do was find those parts of the Klan agenda, which would fit the community and would attract people. Cleveland would first go to the uh, Protestant ministers and try and recruit them so that churches would become recruiting grounds. They'd also go to the sheriff's office and try to recruit those people as well. So that's that's the goal. The problem with that goal in particular is whether you have a group within those communities willing to oppose what you're doing. In many of the communities, whether it was Denver or Grand Junction or Canyon City, the opposition either was intermittent, never awoke uh, or organized too late. And so the Klan was able to, depending on how opinion makers, the uh, newspaper people, the ministers, how they responded to the Klan and set the image for the Klan, how the Klan would be able to work. In Colorado Springs, The uh, leaders of that community, the wealthy leaders, the elite leaders, the people who ran the newspapers, saw the Klan as a major problem right from the beginning. And they basically organized to make sure the Klan could not get a foothold. It's got a foothold, but never could get any power. And they stood united and to rally the masses of folks, the rank and file of the community, not to favor the Klan. I think that was incredibly important. If you go down to Pueblo, Pueblo has an issue of crime, it has an issue of the Italian community bootlegging and what they called the black handers in those days. That is, there were rival gangs attempting to control the liquor trade. And so there was a great deal of violence. So that was a ready-made place for the Klan to use the law and order routine, the law and order uh, pledge, and it was very successful down there. In Canyon City, we have a very, I found this Canyon City and the Grand Junction cases to be incredibly interesting because nobody else had found this kind of thing before. You have a Catholic problem, quote unquote, in Canyon City in the sense that an abbey is being built. And the Catholic population triples uh, in the, the ten years between 1916 and 1926. So the Catholics arising, I mentioned earlier, the Pope was planning to have a summer retreat in Fremont County. Wait, was he really planning that, or was that just no, the, the no. story? Okay. This, this actually in Indiana there was a uh, a Klan uh, lecturer who said, you know, the Pope is coming to America. The Pope is coming. He could be on the train tomorrow from Chicago. Well, a thousand people greeted the plant the train from Chicago. The next day, looking for the Pope. Okay, so the Pope was not planning to be in Fremont County nor in Indiana. Okay, but this was the idea. He's coming. Okay, it's just a matter of time. So it was uh, just a local uh, facility that was being built. Yes. Okay, it was an abbey that was being built in part of a boys' school. Okay, so. There's a Catholic issue uh, there. But more important in, Ca- in, in Canyon City was the idea that a, the courthouse gang had kept taxes low, the elite had kept taxes low, and the Canyon City was in the 19th century, not the 20th century. They needed a new high school, an elementary school. They needed to pave the streets. They needed sidewalks. They needed a new municipal building. They wanted a park system. So the Klan campaigns not on law and order, not on Catholics, not on Jews, not on blacks. It campaigns against the Protestant elite that controls Canyon City with Catholic votes, of course, okay, controls Canyon City, and we want to modernize Canyon City. And that was an appeal that worked in Canyon City. In Grand Junction, and I I, I allude to this, that I think there was concern that uh, the Klan might disrupt the community because there were some legal problems. Uh, Teenagers are out in the cars. Uh, There was a moral order association worried about the future of uh, the morals of Canyon City, of uh, Grand Junction. Uh, And I think William Walker, uh, Walter Walker, excuse me, (laughs) sorry, Walter Walker basically is the uh, 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 editor and publisher of the newspaper, and a leading member, decided. You know what? Let's bring the Klan here, but we can control the Klan, okay? And cl- the Klan can be what we would love it to be, which is another organization, another club, just more exciting, more mysterious than the usual fraternal orders. Because fraternalism, again, was a major outlet for men's social activities in the ninety 19- up to the nineteen twenties. Uh, so the Klan comes there, and the Klan in, in, in Grand Junction is a fraternal organization. It is a social club. It is a means for business people and young people to rise up in the community by getting to know the right people. And it stays that way for several years until uh, the editor of the newspaper, who was the exalted Cyclops, the leader of the Klan, is basically voted out. And as one uh, Klansman told me, well, uh, Walker had a Napoleon complex. So he got voted out, he got mad at the Klan, and suddenly his newspaper is filled with this anti-Klan articles and diatribes uh, against the hooded order. And so this creates this this turmoil, okay, where this deputy sheriff assaults um, Walker on the main street, okay, which intensifies his anger. And then you begin to see this, this split within the Klan, and then the moral order people suddenly taking over the Klan
0: later on. To me, this is, you, you can agree or disagree, but this is, to me, the lesson, the most important lesson maybe for us today, is the importance of an intellectual, cohe- a cohesive intellectual movement against that kind of against that kind of thing, which seemed to be very successful in Colorado Springs. Uh, It seems like Walter Walker's strategy of trying to co-opt this movement and tame it badly backfired and didn't work. And so this strategy of pandering is what, what I would call it is definitely we should not not do. Right. That's not that's something that should be out that we should have very clear statements, morally clear statements against bigotry, religious bigotry, violence, uh, all this things. So to me, I don't know, is that, is that the lesson you would, you would draw for today?
1: It's a crucial le- lesson, and I just want to put a uh, postscript to that, because what I found is when you have a group opposed to the Klan, if it's dominated by minority group members, the enemies of the Klan, the objects, the targets of the Klan, they do not have the opinion-making power to affect the Protestant majority. So, in Denver, for example, there were several Jews and several Catholics who rose up against the Klan, and they were basically ignored. What happens in Colorado springs is it 's the Protestant elite, the Protestant ministers, the Protestants who run the newspapers, who stand against the Klan, and they are going to be listened to by the Protestant rank and file okay so what to, to take your piece, I would love to see this rainbow coalition, if you will, of people knowing that you have to have black folks and brown folks and gay folks in the movement. But if you don't have uh, leaders of the Protestant or white majority, it's not going to succeed.
0: Let me just ask you, and this this might be getting you into trouble, but two of the watchwords back then were law and order, which was abused and often used ironically to unlawfully harass people. And America first. Right. And both of, those, both of those phrases, law and order and America first, today sound extremely familiar. So how much of that should we chalk up to coincidence? And how much should we be genuinely worried about the undercurrents of
1: what those expressions are getting, getting at? Okay, this is not going to get me into trouble. Okay. When I wrote the book, uh, I was uh, several, several reviewers lambasted me. Because I had been too uh, sensitive to the Klan. I'd been too soft on Really? Klan. That yes. is, too I, soft okay. Wow. I didn't morally condemn these extremists. My point in this book, and it's also in the, the membership list and the analyzing who joined the Klan. My point in this book is we are talking about the American mainstream. We're not talking about extremists. We're not talking about psychotics. We're not talking about authoritarian personalities. Uh, we're not talking about n- Nazi types, okay? What we're talking about is p- normal folks who have jobs, lived in the community for a while, were married, and were parents, okay? And this idea of law and order, okay, is at 100% American, is absolutely in the American mainstream. And I argue that the Klan is a forerunner if you will, an ancestor, a forbearer of what we have today in American society. It was not an extremist group at all. It was a mainstream Protestant organization.
0: That to me is almost more terrifying that the Klan was so popular. It was in the churches. It was in the social clubs, the Masons. That's more terrifying than if it were just a fringe extreme. And so... That you know that was not the people that I know and do business with and associate with. And
1: Ari, several books have come out recently which I've reviewed, uh, which I thought were extremely good books. We talked about how the Klan made its presence known in the community, and it talks about. Uh, the wrestling tournaments that the Klan sponsored, or the Klan days at the state fair. But you had all of these activities of Klan movies that were shown, or tons of Klan movies that were also produced and shown in the the theaters of all these small towns and cities. But the Klan was an integral part of the American culture in the 1920s. And I find that to be a very powerful argument.
0: Yeah, and like I say, also terrifying. Yeah. Um, So let's talk briefly about the near sudden collapse of the Klan in 1925 Mm -hmm. in Colorado, at least in Denver.
1: So much of the Klan is tied up with John Galen Locke. John Galen Locke is the essence of the Klan. He is the public face of the Klan. And John Galen Locke got in some trouble in 1925, you alluded to the kidnapping of an 18 year old who had uh, uh, gotten his girlfriend pregnant and uh, John Locke threatened to castrate him unless he married uh, his girlfriend who was also the daughter of a Klansman, okay? Uh, That might've sounded good to some Klansmen, but he was also arrested for uh, kidnapping and conspiracy, got off on that, but that left a bad taste in some people's mouths. John Galen Locke is then accused of income tax evasion, which I think was foisted on him by uh, a dissident clansmen in Colorado who were chafing at his authority. That was a problem. And then if the law and order is the key plank of the Denver Klan, and it is, key plank of the Denver Klan, what happens in uh, on Good Friday in 1925 when uh, Mayor Stapleton rounds up 125 American Legionnaires. Deputizes them, and they arrest two hundred bootleggers, gamblers, and prostitutes. The whole claim that the Klan is a law and order organization, okay, falls right there. Especially when you realize at the center of the tip off and bribe system that kept these people going was the one hundred percent Klan Vice Squad. Okay, so then you start to wonder what kind of organization am I in? And so this kind of of fall uh, based on the uh, the pitfalls of the leader uh, also was repeated in Indiana where a man by the name of David Stevenson, who was the kingpin, the grand dragon of Indiana, was accused of a kidnapping and rape, which led to a rapid decline of the Klan there. When your leaders are seen to be low, the leaders are seen to be disgraced and flawed, it's hard to stay with the Klan as an organization. And then other people said, you know, I joined the Klan for X, Y, and Z. I got what I wanted. Crime is down. The black folks aren't uh, leaving five points anymore. The Jews seem to have been uh, stifled. The Catholics haven't uh, rose up to uh, with their guns in the basements of their churches. So maybe the Klan did its job, and I don't need to continue to pay uh, fees on this. One Klansman told me that... Uh, he was tired of being uh, herded around by clansmen on horseback on South Table Mountain. There was a crowd of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 people. I joined a fraternity which would have the mystic life that I so cherished, the ritualistic life, and this was not it on South Table Mountain. And uh, in Canyon City, what they told me is, we succeeded and we won. We got the new school built, we got the park system, we got the streets paved, and we didn't need the clan anymore. And those clansmen who were in office continued in office, not as clansmen, but just as the the successful mayor and city council thereafter. Okay.
0: Well, I guess thank goodness for Locke's moral weaknesses,
1: because otherwise it might have lasted longer. But um, well, you got to remember the Clarence Morley and that disastrous defeat of basically every Klan proposal in the state legislature. That certainly didn't help. Right.
0: So your book came out in 1981, and we were talking about it today. And I was just wondering, if you, if you were to rewrite it today or do a new edition, is there anything that you've learned since then that you would add, or is there anything that you would
1: change? I would be much more sensitive to gender issues with the Klan. And the, uh, the, there was a large women's Klan in Colorado, Led by uh, Lorena Center, Center, who was Gaino Center's wife, uh, the uh, I would also be more tuned to the nuances of clan culture, which infiltrated the community. Uh, I mentioned the the various uh, events that everybody was invited to, and how the clan was really not simply a growth that came and then was exercised, but rather that this is part of a broad community sentiment. I'd be much more sensitive to that.
0: Well, you do discuss one of the legislators who was a woman and who sponsored at least one bill yeah. and uh, who was part of this women, woman clans movement. So you get into that a bit, but that's that's interesting.
1: But when um, but you have the clan also sponsoring... Uh, being in support of the women's vote, in support of women as jurors, as supportive of women's uh, minimum wage. Uh, There's this progressive element, which I basically played with in regard to Canyon City. But I think that's very important. But again, what that also tells me is this was a mainstream movement, which was attached to a variety of things that were popular to the mass of Protestants in this country and in Colorado.
0: Okay. Well, I... I think we're ready to wrap up, unless you have any other big topic you'd like to introduce. Maybe you can tell people what your
1: current projects are and how people can find out more about your work. Well, what I have been doing, uh, I've given several uh, talks recently and, and researching, although it never seems to end, conspiracy in the age of Trump and how conspiracy thinking has changed from the 1920s, 1970s, 1990s to what it is today. Uh, i have very feel familiar with QAnon, and so I've been following those activities. So the work that I'm doing now relates primarily to that. Are any of those talks online available? Yes, uh, they are. My talk um, at the University of Central Florida is online.
0: I'll look for those. If I can't find them, maybe you can email me the links. Uh-huh. And I'm going to have a show page for this, so listeners can be aware. I'm going to drop in relevant links in the show page, so people can can watch some th- those talks which are available. Very cool. And uh, I'll also put in links. And I also do a little on Mormon studies as well. Oh, interesting. Latter-day Saints. So when I, when I lived in Utah, um, you know, I grew up in a Protestant church. So the first question uh, someone asked me is, what ward are you in? I'm
1: like, I had no idea what he was saying. So well, I, when, I didn't I, <laughs> When I first heard it, it was ward. Well, that's is Chicago or New York has wards. You don't mean that kind of ward. But the other thing was the steakhouse. And I said, Steakhouse? And I didn't realize, I thought, you know, steakhouse, like you eat a steak. But what it is, is the steaks of a tent. And so the steakhouse, which is the, the, the steaks are the different wards creating the steak. Uh, but but I've lived here for 40 years and quite from now uh, in touch with Latter-day Saint history and uh, issues, positive and negative. Well, it's inter- interesting in Grand Junction because it's sort of a... Uh...
0: It's almost as much Utah as it is Colorado, and there's a lot of Mormon. There's a vibrant Mormon community in in the Grand Junction area, so I was somewhat familiar with it, but still, it was not the same as living in near Salt Lake. Um,
1: No. Well, Salt Lake. Vote just so you know, it Salt Lake voted uh, for Obama twice and Hillary Clinton once. Uh, It has a. It's had a uh, gay mayor, and uh, now has a women's women's mayor. Uh, So. uh, we're actually the progressive blue spot in this very, very red state. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting with the history
0: of initially not, did they not allow black people into the church or they just had some odd language about
1: black people? Anyway, that's been black people resolved that long ago. made the wrong decision at the, uh, in the pre-existence and uh, they were allowed to be members of the church but could not uh, deal with to become elders or go to the temple okay so yeah there's interesting history there and so and i'll
0: also link to the university of utah has the pdf of your book from 81 doesn't seem to be in print so i don't know if there's any talk of putting that back in print
1: you know there was when i would i because i came to denver uh over the last two years about two or three times i gave a talk up in golden and i gave a talk Mm. in denver uh under the uh, university of colorado auspices and there was some discussion at that point but uh it didn't go very far. Well, at least people can read it easily through the website. So
0: sure. I, I personally I appreciate that. All right. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I think people are going to get a lot out of this who get it. I really it. appreciated the invitation. Thank you, Ari. Yeah. And and everyone, be sure that you you go and read the book. It's super interesting, especially if you live in Colorado or this area. It's it's a really interesting book. I was I found every page to be eye-popping in some way or another. So I, I, it's, it's an important piece of history that's difficult to read in some respects, but very important to understand. So this has been the Self and Society podcast. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Thank you.